Hi, everybody. I know I mentioned last week that uh, I was probably going to be doing The Night Ocean by R.H. Barlow this week. And to my credit, I sat down and started recording it. And I just couldn't. I couldn't get through it. I could not do it. I am so sorry I, if, if you were looking forward to it. I am so sorry. This is not going to be The Night Ocean, as you've probably already figured out from the title. There will probably come a time when I do it. In fact, let me tell you what. If I can record it in like bits and pieces throughout the course of a couple of weeks and then just edit it all together, I will do the Night Ocean. But considering it is currently 4 o'clock on Monday and I need to have this edited and uploaded in four hours, I, I can't. I just I can't do the whole thing today. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. I know I said I would, and I'm not going to now. I'm totally going back on that, and that's on me. That makes me the asshole. I've never said I'm not. Thank you for listening. I really appreciate it. I'm not going to do the night ocean this week. One last thing about one last thing before we get into this story. Uh, I picked this story simply, exclusively, 100% because of the last line of the story. The Purple Death. By Gustav Mayrink. The Tibetan fell silent. The emaciated figure stood quietly for a while, erect and unmoving, then disappeared into the jungle. Sir Roger Thornton stared into the fire. If the Tibetan had not been a Sunyasin and a penitent to boot, if he had not been making his pilgrimage to Benares, then not a single word would have been believable, but a Sanyasin neither lies nor can be lied to. And yet, that horribly malicious expression that had flickered in the Asian's face. Or was it just a trick of the flickering firelight that reflects so strangely in Mongolian eyes? The Tibetans hated the Europeans and jealously guarded their magical secrets with which they hoped one day to exterminate the haughty, pompous foreigners, one day when the great day dawns. He, Sir Hannibal Roger Thornton, himself one of these hated Europeans, must see with his own eyes whether supernatural powers really rested in the hands of these remarkable people. But he would need companions, brave men whose wills cannot be broken, even if they were pursued by the very screams of hell. The Englishman assessed his companions. There, the Afghan, the only one who could be considered an Asian, fearless as a panther, but superstitious. That left only the European servant. Sir Roger roused him with a nudge from his walking stick, Pompeius Jaburek had been completely deaf since the age of ten, yet he understood every spoken word, fantastic as it may seem, by reading lips. Sir Roger explained, with frequent gestures, what he had learned from the Tibetan. About twenty days' ride from here, near the Himavat, lay a very strange land, surrounded on three sides by sheer rock walls. The sole passage led through poisonous gas, which flowed out of the ground and would instantly kill any living thing which passed by. In the ravine itself, which was about fifty square English miles in extent, there was a small tribe in the thick of the rankest vegetation. These people were of Tibetan stock, wore pointed red caps, and rendered worship to an evil satanic being in the form of a peacock. This devilish entity had, over the course of centuries, instructed the inhabitants in the ways of black magic, and imparted such secrets as could turn the whole earth upside down and kill even the strongest man in the blink of an eye. Pompeius smiled mockingly. Sir Roger explained that he planned to use diving helmets and aqualungs to pass through the poisonous plain to penetrate the mysterious ravine. 
Pompeius Jaburek nodded in agreement and rubbed his dirty hands together gleefully. The Tibetan, indeed, had not lied. There, below in the midst of vibrant greens, lay the strange ravine, a gold-brown, desert-like belt of weather-beaten earth. It was roughly an hour's walk in length, and then the entire area disappeared from the outside world. The gas, spiraling up from the earth, was pure carbon dioxide. Sir Roger Thornton, who had surveyed the width of this belt from the safety of a hilltop, decided that they would begin the descent on the following morning. The diving helmets sent from Bombay worked perfectly. Pompeius carried both repeating rifles and various equipment which his lordship had considered indispensable. The Afghan, on the other hand, had stubbornly and fearfully refused to join the expedition, explaining that he would sooner climb into a tiger's lair. He must, he objected, weigh the risks very carefully, since even his immortal soul might well hang in the balance. So in the end, only the two Europeans dared the venture. The diving helmets were functioning flawlessly. Their copper globes gleamed in the sun and threw fanciful shadows on the spongy ground from which the lethal gas swirled up in tiny geysers. Sir Roger had chosen a fast pace so that the compressed air would last them long enough to pass through the entirety of the gas zone. He saw everything before him shift unstably as if through a thin film of water. The sunlight rose in ghostly green and colored the distant glaciers, the roof of the world with its gigantic profile, like an eerie dead landscape. Soon they found that he and Pompeius had emerged onto a fresh grassy field, and he lit a match to test the atmospheric quality first. Then he doffed his helmet and unencumbered himself of his air tank. Behind him lay the wall of vapor, shimmering like a living mass of water. The scent of amberia blossoms in the air was overwhelming. Shimmering butterflies, strangely marked and as large as a man's hand, rested like open magical tomes upon the unmoving blossoms. The pair walked at a considerable distance from one another towards the west in the direction of the forest which obscured their field of vision. Sir Roger signaled his deaf servant. Pompeius cocked his rifle. They walked along the forest edge and before them lay a clearing. Barely a quarter of an English mile ahead of them, a group of men, clearly Tibetans with red-pointed caps, formed a semicircle. They had obviously been waiting for the intruders. Fearlessly, Sir Roger advanced to meet the crowd, Pompeius only a few steps from his side. Only the customary sheepskin costumes of the Tibetans seemed familiar, otherwise they scarcely even seemed human. Expressions of hideous hate and supernatural terrifying evil had distorted their countenances beyond recognition. At first they let the pair draw near, then as one, obeying their leader's signal, they clapped their hands over their ears in one lightning-fast motion and began screaming at the top of their lungs. Pompeius Jaburek looked questioningly at his lordship, then raised his rifle. The bizarre actions of the crowd suggested imminent attack. But what happened next sent his heart straight into his throat. A trembling, swirling gas cloud began to gather about his lordship, somewhat resembling the fumes they had walked through earlier. Sir Roger's shape began to blur, to grow indistinct as if its contours had been eroded by the whirling funnel. The man's head seemed to elongate to a point, the entire mass collapsing onto itself as if melting. And on the very spot where only moments before the Englishman had stood was a pale violet cube about the size and shape of a small sugar loaf. The deaf Pompeius shook with a terrible rage. As the Tibetans kept up their screaming, he squinted to focus on their dancing lips and read whatever it was they might be saying. It was always the same word, over and over again. At once the leader came forward, and the rest left off screaming, took their hands off their ears, and rushed toward Pompeius. 
At this, he commenced firing wildly at the crowd with his repeating rifle, which halted them momentarily. Then instinctively he shouted the word back at them, the word he had read off their lips, Amalan! Amalan! He yelled it so loudly that the ravine trembled as with an earthquake. Dizziness overcame him. He saw everything as if peering through thick glasses, and the ground heaved and swayed beneath him. This lasted just a moment, and then he could see clearly again. The Tibetans had disappeared, just as his lordship had. Before Pompeius, only countless purple cones lay scattered. The leader still lived. His legs had already transformed into blue mush, and even the torso was beginning to shrink. It was as if the whole man were being digested inside some transparent being. Instead of a red hat, the leader's head was covered by a thing shaped like a bishop's mitre in which golden living eyes moved. Jaburak smashed the leader's skull with his rifle butt, but he was not in time to prevent the dying man in his last moment stabbing him in the foot with a sickle. Then he surveyed the scene around him. Not a living thing far and wide. The acrid scent of ambaria blossoms had intensified and was almost stinging. It seemed to emanate from the purple skittles, and these Pompeius now investigated. They were all exactly alike, composed of a pale, violet, gelatinous mucus. As for the estimable Sir Roger Thornton, he could not now possibly be distinguished among the field of purple pyramids. Pompeius gnashed his teeth and ground his heel in what remained of the dead leader's face. Then he turned and ran back along the way he had come. At a distance he beheld the copper helmets gleaming in the sun. Gaining them, he lost no time pumping his diving canister full of air and made his way across the gas zone. Oh God, oh God, his lordship was dead. Dead here in remotest India. The ice-capped mountains of the Himalayan range yawned at the mountains. After all, what cared they for the suffering of one tiny beating human heart? Pompeius accurately wrote down, word for word, everything he had experienced and seen, although he was still far from beginning to comprehend it. Then he sent his account to the secretary of his lordship in Bombay in 17 Adiratullah Street. The Afghan promised to ensure its delivery. Thus assured, Pompeius Jaburak died, the result of the poison with which the Tibetan sickle had been smeared. There is no god but God, and Muhammad is his prophet, mumbled the Afghan, touching his forehead to the ground before the corpse, which the Hindu servants had strewn with flowers, and now proceeded to cremate atop a beer to the accompaniment of customary hymns. Ali Murad Bey, the secretary, receiving the horrible news, blanched and immediately sent the letter to the editorial office of the Indian Gazette. The deluge broke out from there. The paper, which published the downfall of Sir Roger Thornton the very next day, issued the morning edition a full three hours later than usual. A strange and indeed horrifying incident was blamed for the delay. It seems that Mr. Birendranath Nauraji, the editor of the Indian Gazette, along with two assistants, was abducted without a trace from the closed workroom where they sat reading the galleys around midnight. All that stood to mark their places was a trio of blue, gelatinous cylinders, with sheets of freshly printed newspaper scattered between them. The police announced with pompous bluster that they had concluded their protocols and declared the case closed, albeit an insoluble mystery. But that was only the beginning. Dozens of gesticulating men, who had only moments before been quietly perusing their newspapers, simply disappeared before the eyes of the terrified crowd which thronged the streets. In their places, countless little violet pyramids stood about on the steps in the marketplace and side streets, everywhere the eye could see. Before evening, Bombay had lost half its considerable population. 
An official health edict mandated that all ports be closed at once and that Bombay be sealed to all traffic with the outside world in an effort to contain the new epidemic. Only such drastic measures, it was thought, could hope to stem the tide. Meanwhile, telegraphs and cables were going day and night, sending the frightening report, including, of course, the entire transcript of the Thornton case, syllable for syllable across the oceans and throughout the world. By the very next day, the quarantine, imposed too late, was lifted. From countries all over the world came the horrible news that the Purple Death had broken out everywhere simultaneously and threatened the population of the entire world. All lost their heads, and the civilized world looked like a teeming anthill into which some farm boy had thrust a burning tobacco pipe. In Germany, the plague broke out first in Hamburg. Austria, however, where they read only local news, remained impervious for weeks. The first case in Hamburg was especially shocking. Pastor Stolken, a man whom advanced age had rendered practically deaf, sat down to an early breakfast surrounded by his beloved family. Theobald, his eldest, with his long-stemmed student pipe, Jete, his devoted wife, Michin, Tinchi, in short, everyone, all fourteen members of his family. The Greybeard had only just opened the newly arrived English newspaper and begun to read to the others the reports of the downfall of Sir Roger Thornton. He had just gotten past the strange word Amalon when he paused in his reading to fortify himself with a sip of coffee. Just then, to his horror, he discovered that the breakfast table was circled with not but purple blobs of slime in one of them was stuck a long-stemmed pipe. All fourteen souls had been taken by the Lord. The pious old man fainted dead away. One week later, more than half the population was dead. It was left, at last, to a German scholar to shed some light on the situation. The fact that only the deaf and the deaf-mute seemed to be immune sparked the accurate theory that the epidemic was not a biological, but rather an acoustic phenomenon. In the solitude of his study, he had written a long scientific paper on the matter, then scheduled a public lecture, advertising it with several slogans. His explanation was based on his knowledge of a very obscure Indian religious text which described the creation of astral and fluid tornadoes through the speaking aloud of certain words contained in spells. This apparent superstition, the savant claimed, can now be made sense of through the modern sciences of vibration and radiation theory. He held his lecture in Berlin and was required to employ a megaphone to read the long sentences of his manuscript, so great was the crowd of the interested public. The memorable speech concluded with concise words, Go now to the audiologist and have him render you deaf, and so protect yourselves from the spoken word, Amalon. A second later, the scholar and his entire crowd of listeners were nothing more than slime blobs, but the manuscript remained behind. Over the course of time, it became widely known and spared mankind from complete extinction. A few decades later, about 1950, a new and universally deaf population inhabited the globe. Customs and habits were different, rank and possessions all rearranged. An audiologist ruled the world. Musical scores were relegated to the same dustbin with the alchemists' formulas of the Middle Ages. Mozart, Beethoven, Wagner all as laughable as Albertus Magnus and Bombastus Paracelsus. Here and there, in those torture chambers called museums, a dusty piano bears its yellowing teeth. Author's Postscript The esteemed reader is hereby advised against a public recital of the foregoing. All right, well, I hope you enjoyed The Purple Death by Gustave Meyrink. I hope 
None of you have been turned into purple blobs by my public recital of the foregoing. Uh, thank you all for listening, as you always do. Again, I apologize for this not being the night ocean. I will get that. I promise. I promise I will get that up. I'm going to have to do it. I'm going to have to record it in chunks over the course of a couple of weeks because holy crap. Anyway, um, thank you all for listening. I really appreciate it. Please feel free to give me a rating and a review on iTunes. There are those who say that uh, those do nothing and very possibly they don't do anything. I like reading them because I like to know whether or not I'm doing a good job. And if you have some constructive criticism, I always take that to heart and I always, you know, address it and talk about it. So anyway, thank you all for listening. And da 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 here's the blues. Side world in an effort to contain the new epidemic. Uh, <coughs> Need some more go juice. It's just root beer, everybody. Chill out and calm down.